0: is a real barn burner, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that passage, uh, meat sacrifice to idols and, uh, you know, all of the stuff that Isaac just read. The first time I re- uh, read it this week, as I was looking ahead to this morning, I thought, okay, like, this is a, this is a strange passage on the surface, and it feels really far removed from where we find ourselves, sitting here in January of 2021. But then the more I sat with the passage, I was uh, sort of taken again by how often the lectionary has a way, for those of you who don't know, the lectionary is a cycle of readings from the scriptures to help guide us through the story of scripture, And, uh, and, and this is the passage for this week, and I was amazed again at how often the most timely passage shows up under the disguise of something obscure like what Isaac read for us today, and so I actually think we're going to find the passage to be quite meaningful for the place we find ourselves. Um, So we're reading from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually the third letter exchanged between Paul and the church in Corinth. We have lost the other two. We don't know what they say. They know they exist because Paul references them directly in the text. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5-9, we read—it'll come up on the screen here in a moment— Paul says that in my first letter to you—so we know that Paul has written to them before. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 7-1, he begins to address the uh, matters that they wrote to him. And so we know that there's been a back-and-forth exchange happening here uh, between the Corinthian church and Paul. Now, one of the things that's fascinating as we read the scripture reading that, that Isaac took us through is there are these sneaky quotation marks in the text and they almost disappear into the background and it seems like Paul is talking out of both sides of his mouth. But what he's actually doing is directly quoting the letter, the lost letter, from the Corinthian church to him, and he uses their quotes, and then he responds to their quotes. And so, uh, we'll look at those in just a moment, but they find themselves in this pluralistic society. Corinth was a town similar to how we may think of Las Vegas. There was a lot of different ways of living, we shall say, and a lot of different religions, and many of those religions required sacrifice of meat. And so the temples were full of meat, but most of that meat had previously been sacrificed to an idol. And so that's the conflict, that's the the challenge, the moral dilemma that the Church finds themselves in, is can we eat this meat even though it's been sacrificed to another god that we actually don't think is a god at all? But there's something else bigger happening in the text, and that's what's going to drive our conversation today. And the bigger thing happening in the text is this. How is the church to be in relationship with culture around it? How is Christ's cruciform church to be in relationship with the world around it. So we'll look at the larger principle that Paul is getting at in the text today, and then in a little bit we're going to apply it to a thing that is very pertinent in our lives here today. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 8, and this will come up on the screen here. These are some of the quotes, right? Paul is responding to the church, and he says, We know that, and then he quotes the letter that they sent him, All of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So that's Paul's response. Yes, we know that. But, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Later on, he says, we know that, and here's the quote again, no idol in the world really exists. And Paul agrees. He says, indeed. And so, essentially, the Corinthian church is saying, hey Paul, we're free. We can eat whatever we want to eat, because these idols aren't real in the first place. And Paul's response is, yes, you are correct about that. Theologically, the statement you just made is true, but Paul then takes them into a bigger truth that is beyond their rightness. They are right on this matter, but they're missing something that is more deeply true, and that's what he's beginning to take them into. He's going to show them that this knowledge also requires responsibility in order to actually be life-giving. And so, some in the Corinthian church had recently left idolatry behind. It was part of their way of life. They convert to following the way of Jesus, and idolatry is still a fresh reminder of the life they just left. And so, what Paul is saying here is that they are vulnerable to re-enter that life. He calls them weak in the passage, and I don't think he means that in a demeaning way. He's saying they're vulnerable. And so, uh, it, it is important, then, that those who have this freedom use it responsibly. Uh, Later in the letter, the Corinthians write to Paul, and this will be on the next slide, uh, that all things are permissible. All things are permissible. Everything's permissible. And Paul again agrees with them. You're right, but not everything is edifying. Not everything builds up. So whereas he says knowledge puffs us up, only love builds up and in fact not everything is helpful toward building up and so this right knowledge applied carelessly can actually tear down the vulnerable and so what's happening is the passage here is inviting us to consider the relationship between individual freedom and communal flourishing individual freedom and communal flourishing in the name of their individual liberty some believers in corinth had lost sight of their responsibility to others and when that happens, there's almost always, it's human nature, another faction that arises that swings in such extreme opposite reaction that they end up becoming sanctimonious and scrupulous and actually forfeiting their freedom altogether. And so Paul's inviting us into a wise and discerned way forward. Now, Paul is perhaps the greatest champion of freedom that we have in the entire Bible. There's no greater uh, champion and, and proclaimer of freedom than Paul. It is Paul who says it is for freedom that you have been set free and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is championing freedom. And yet, there is one thing that Paul consistently says supersedes individual freedom and it's this. The promotion of the gospel. If we look at Paul's life, there is a guiding principle that he refers to and lives and embodies over and over and over. And the principle is this, what's going to best represent and advance this good news? What's going to best represent and advance the good news? In fact, Paul devotes the entire next chapter of Corinthians. We're not going to look at it in depth, but he, present, he uh, dedicates the whole next chapter to using his own life as a case study of this principle. It'll come up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 9, and it says that though I am free with respect to all, I have freedom, he says, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I am not under the law so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I might by any means save some. And then he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And so if we look at Paul's life, We see him saying, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to do whatever I can to remove obstacles that might prevent someone from hearing the good news of Jesus. Paul embodies this in his life in a huge number of ways. Uh, If we uh, know anything about the life of Paul, we, we know that his name used to be Saul. And there's this kind of common understanding that Saul changed his name to Paul when he was converted to the Christian faith, but that's actually not true. He used the name Saul for another 17 years when he was ministering in Jewish contexts. But then he goes to Rome, and in order to be more uh, contextually sensitive to his new audience, he uses his Roman name of Paul. So he's applying this principle. What he's saying is, I will lay, willingly lay down my liberty if my liberty would harm others. The most obvious example of this has to do with circumcision, right? Paul is like the champion in the New Testament saying uh, that there is not a need for circumcision. And in fact, for Titus, one of his followers, he refuses to mandate that Titus be circumcised. And yet, then, not long after that, he goes and says that Timothy needs to be circumcised. And it sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, but what he's doing is actually contextualizing the gospel in order to remove any barriers or hindrances that might stop people from being able to hear it. In the case of Titus the gospel would have been corrupted by forcing Titus to be circumcised. But in the case of Timothy, they were going to a Jewish community and Paul knew that the lack of circumcision, I don't know how they knew who was circumcised and who wasn't, (laughs) that's a whole other thing, but he knew that the lack of circumcision was going to be such an offense to the audience that it would have been a barrier for them being able to hear the good news. Let me give us a, a practical example. If you want to spread a message. You don't set up a bunch of obstacles that make that message harder to hear. So, since we're having the Wheatons today, I have decided that Isaac graduated from UGA because nobody else volunteered to graduate or said that they graduated from UGA. So, Isaac, congratulations. You now have a degree from UGA. I've just bestowed it upon you. So, let's imagine a scenario where Isaac is a grad uh, of UGA, and he's also running for the State Senate. And Isaac is, like, sitting with his campaign director, and they're like, we have got to find a way to spread the news about this campaign because it's struggling. we got to get more votes. How can we do this? How can we spread the word about your campaign? And Isaac has this idea. He's like, you know what? The Bulldogs, the dogs, I think you guys say here in Georgia, are playing uh, the University of Florida in this giant SEC showdown this weekend. I'm going to go to Athens, and I'm going to pass out, vote for Isaac Flyers wherever I go. Now, Isaac's never been much of a sports fan, but he really loves the color orange, and Jenny just really thinks that his eyes pop whenever he wears the color blue. And so, Isaac, deciding what to wear, goes and pulls out his Lacoste blue and orange polo shirt, the one with a gator on it, and he wears this to the game (laughs) where they're playing Florida. How many votes is Isaac going to get when he says, vote for Isaac, Georgia State Senate? He's not gonna get any at all, right? And he's not going to, because he set up this giant barrier between the message he's trying to proclaim and then the hindrances he's put up to have that message taken seriously, right? The takeaway is this, that the gospel is already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder. Jesus already calls this a narrow way. We don't need to make it harder for it to be received. So our freedoms even if they are otherwise healthy, good desires, if they will hinder the representation of the gospel in any particular time or context, we are to willingly choose to lay them down. It is better to go without them because in the Christian life we are responsible for one another. And being certain of what is right is not enough because rightness doesn't always build up. Only love builds up. At the heart of Paul's message is this counterintuitive understanding of Christian freedom. We are free, and precisely because we are free, we are also free to go without those very freedoms. If we need to have the thing we say makes us free, then we've actually become enslaved to it. And so Paul is saying that, yes, you have the liberty to eat this meat, but you also have the responsibility not to if it will hurt the vulnerable and then leading by example, he says, I'll never eat meat again, if that's what it takes in order to love my neighbors well. So let's apply in our final moments here, this obscure passage to the place we find ourselves here, uh, 2000 odd, some years later, right? Uh, A year ago, we found ourselves in this unique moment where our actions, even those that are otherwise good and healthy and deeply meaningful suddenly impacted directly those around us including those who don't yet know jesus and so we took our cues from paul And a primary reason the parish has not gathered for worship in the last year in person, or at least not indoors in person, is because of this principle that Paul is laying out here. This is a great example of how theology gets applied onto daily life. Because we wanted to make a commitment to be a church for the sake of others, and that meant tending to the vulnerable, and that superseded our otherwise good desire to gather. This was, in other words, a mission-based decision, not a fear-based decision, right? Because one of the most damaging things we could have done in this season was gather as a group and sing a bunch of songs out loud, right? Like, that's that's just one of the ways that this virus spreads. If it was as simple as we could gather and we were the only ones taking a risk, that would have been a different calculus. But because of the way this spreads in the community, we made this mission-based decision pulling on the principle that Paul lays out here in Corinthians right and so I don't want to be overkill with that. Don't mishear me. We don't want to slip to the other extreme where we become paralyzed or we become sanctimonious but this is a significant season of discernment where almost every decision we make, almost every action we take we have to discern what does it look like to dance in the freedom God gives us while also uh, remembering the communal flourishing of the wider community around us. And so, what this passage is showing us is that when we have to choose between freedom and mission, God always calls us to lean to the vulnerable, always calls us to lean to the vulnerable. The vulnerable in this case may be the physically vulnerable, the economically vulnerable, but it also might be the vulnerable who don't yet know Jesus, and we have a chance right now to show up in community in ways that make this better, not worse. And so, friends, as we look around the country, as we look around the headlines, there are churches right now that are demanding their rights. There is a well-known ministry right now that is holding maskless rallies in a homeless community while selling t-shirts on the side that say Jesus Christ is the real super spreader. And I got to tell you, it damages our witness when we demand our rights rather than showing up as servants. Because our needs are met in Jesus, we don't need these things that otherwise would be good, healthy desires. So, that involves real loss though. And I'm gonna end with this. Like this last year, and I wanna be clear, I'm, I'm talking more about why we approached the last year the way we did. I'm not necessarily talking about the path forward from here. We'll talk about that at the end of our gathering. But the reason we've done this is, is for the sake of others, but it requires real loss. And so we have to be able to take that loss to Jesus, to name it for what it is, and to recognize that Christ is being formed in us through the crucible of this season, where our inconveniences and our otherwise good desires are stripped away. God comes through the disguise of that very inconvenience, through the disguise of that very loss, in order to form us more into his likeness. As we end, I want to be clear about two things I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is the most overactive conscience in the group gets to always dictate what the group does. Right? If we did it that way, the church would totally lose its prophetic witness. That's not what Paul's saying.
1: The other thing I'm not saying
0: is that until the last COVID case is eradicated from our community, we will never meet again as a church. No, not at all. Again, I'm more reflecting backwards on the last year and applying this passage theologically onto our situation so that we can have a practical way of applying it. Uh, In fact, we are beginning to look ahead to how we can begin regathering our community as the weather begins to improve. We're gonna talk about neighborhood groups here in a bit. And I sense that sooner than later, we're gonna be able to come together in fresh, meaningful ways that are still for the sake of our wider community. But for (laughs) now, we continue to worship online and I know it's a sacrifice, I know it's a loss, I know it's not the most meaningful way to gather, but we do it because it's cold outside and our state is still in the red, whether we like it or not. And so that's how we participate in the incarnation of Advent right now. That's who we follow, the God of Epiphany, who shows up in unlikely places, even Zoom church. That's how we follow in the wilderness of Lent, laying down some of the things we would otherwise hope to have, That is one of the ways we may be taking up our cross in this Easter season that's coming up. But resurrection follows. Resurrection always follows. And so as the weather improves, we're going to begin regathering in person. We'll be telling you about that over the coming weeks, uh, and we'll talk about small groups in a bit. But first of all, we remember that the whole point of our existence is in order that we might receive the sacrifice and embody the sacrifice of Christ to the community around us as God's cruciform church culture